Welcome to the Overton Pod, a new podcast by myself and that man over there, Kenton Pillay. How are you, sir? I am excellent, as always. Yeah, good, good. Um, so, something new? Um, any thoughts? <laughs> I think uh, the concept of doing something that really looks at the Overton window, so to speak, mm, is, exactly. uh, is going to be a bit of a game changer for people because mm. they don't really think in terms of concepts of how these uh, societal shifts come to play and how conversations move and more importantly how the world changes as a direct result of that yeah so, yeah i think it's going to be fun yeah I, I, maybe to give some background um so about a year ago i started on a kind of media journey uh, this is going to sound very esoteric but i started on this sort of media journey where i decided I wanted to get into the media space a bit more than just being a commentator occasionally on podcasts and other shows and and uh, on uh, social media. And the reason behind that obviously was what we went through from uh, 2020 up until 2023. Um, and I mean, must I mention it by name? Yeah. <laughs> Um, the the spicy cough, as uh, a friend of ours would describe it. Yeah, the, yeah, um, that's Big Daddy. Um, yeah, the, the the COVID insanity, um, the uh, pandemic, um, and I I really realised that um, that and so much else. I will. That was a life changing event for me um, in many many ways. Uh, there was uh, there was a lot of realisation about how the world works, about who's in control. Um, about how quickly humans will just acquiesce to things um, and some really terrible things. Uh, you know, there's so many examples, but uh, adult parents forcing masks onto their 18-month children. Um, there, were just, there was just so much about that period that was, that, that was uh, truly evil. And, but what I realized is um, people have a view of the world, which is informed very much by the people around them and then very much by the media and and what is in the broad sort of Overton window. And for those of you who aren't aware, the um, Overton window is uh, coined um, or named after a gentleman who, whose surname was Overton um, and an American guy, an economist as far as I recall. And he basically said, look, there's certain topics that fall within – the Overton window, they fall within a window of, access, uh, of um, acceptability. And essentially, those are the things you're allowed to talk about. Uh, those are the things which are socially acceptable, which you won't be shunned for, for talking about, for mentioning. And then there's things that fall outside of the Overton window, which you will be shunned for talking about, which aren't uh, po popular, which you'll never hear politicians speak about, for example, because they won't vote. Um, and if politicians do talk about it, they'll be called populists, for example, and, and be given derogatory names. And I just realized that that's kind of the world we live in. And if you want to make a positive impact from my perspective, I feel as if you have to deal with the things that perhaps fall outside of the Overton window. You have to speak about the things or the way of approaching certain topics that people may find uncomfortable, that people have never heard that particular view. And so I launched the Overton Press. Um, it's been slow going, admittedly, uh, but an online publication that at the moment is a substack um, and will ultimately expand uh, further than that. 
Uh, but this is an Overton pod, an Overton podcast, uh, with the intent of Canthon and myself having conversations. We're going to do it every two weeks. We're going to release an episode, or we're going to try. Uh, and we're going to try to talk about things. Um, and just to give some examples, perhaps, uh, if you look at uh, the abortion debate in, uh, in, in the world, but let's take the United States as an example, uh, that has fallen inside and outside of the Overton window in many different ways over time. Um, so um, very much uh, through the 60s and 70s was America moved towards pro-abortion or, or, or pro-being able to access that, that service. Um, and then um, with the advent of ultrasound and the view of uh, fetuses, babies, um, depending on how you view it, uh, again, an Overton concept, um, <clears throat> with that coming in, then um, it became a bit of a question about, well, where where is there life here that we're perhaps ending soon, sooner? And so that's a conversation that's moved in and out of the Overton window. That's a big conversation over time. Um, another big conversation over time, well, more recent, is the Russia conversation. Um, I would reckon that four years ago, if you'd asked most people what they thought about Putin, they were ambivalent, most people. I think some people would have said, if people were very invested, they would have said, look, they've got a view one way or another, good, bad, whatever it is. But I think most people would have been ambivalent in the world. We're now told that um, he is Satan incarnate. He is uh, the ultimate evil. Um, that's the current Overton window. And uh, I, th I think that these are the types well, of conversations. Well, on which part of the world you're in, Jonathan, because um, if you look in terms of how the votes have gone around the Ukraine issues. Mm. That's very much a Western world uh, outlook, so mm. to speak, in terms of whether or not Putin is Satan incarnate. I must say that up until four years ago, to your point, yeah. I was probably in the category of people who thought that Putin was Satan incarnate. Well, sure. not Satan incarnate, but certainly, you know, kind of more like a mafia boss. Mm. Yeah, I still have a view that he's a mafia boss. As but, do I, actually. But um, I also think that he's a very smart person, and he also generally, um, in my view, has the best interests of his populace at heart, mm. which uh, is not something that I had considered four years ago. Okay. In interesting yeah. takes on things. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, you you often get a lot of kickback against uh, your comments. Uh, you know, when you're on the burning platform with Gareth, for example, uh, you'll get a fair amount of kickback to to your takes on on on, on Russia, as an example. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing because people assume that because I state things the way I see them, that means that I necessarily support them. Mm, yeah. So, for example, when I said at the time in which this war started two years ago. I said exactly what was going to happen. I predicted the course of events. I did the comparative strength of the forces that were involved. And my take on it was that Russia is going to win this. Mm. And everyone said, oh, there he goes. He's pro-Russia. Again, let's go back to October 7th. I, I took a very studied view on this. And I, and I said that whatever your thoughts may be in terms of who you support, it's very clear to me Israel is going to win this. Now, that doesn't mean that I am supporting things that are happening on the ground. It's making a very studied observation yeah. around what the various forces are that come to play. And, you know, contrary to popular opinion, facts are not determined by popular opinion. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, yeah. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, facts, facts become a problem. I mean, I'll go back to COVID again. I, I turned around and said... Um, 
this is uh, this is not the virus you're being told it is. And um, I was called a granny killer, right? I mean, that wasn't factual. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, the, 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 the Overton at the time became uh, very uh, narrow and was this is a deadly virus. You need to stay home, stay safe. If you don't, you're going to kill people and you're a bad person. Um, and, you know, the, the, the facts of that obviously have come out much too late and, and we all made a terrible mistake. Um, and I would think that it's responsibility of any of those of us in honest media, um, and I exclude pretty much all mainstream media from that, um, legacy media, corporate media, whatever you want to call it, um, all of those of us in honest media need to be as honest as we can be about the things that are going on in the world because it has a direct influence on the way people behave, on the way people react, um, on the way people think about things. Um, and... I mean, what do you think about what's going on in the U.S.? I feel as if I'm talking about the presidential election. I feel as if there's been a shift. Um, so, 2015, uh, there was this, you know, Trump's Hitler, uh, Orange Hitler. Um, he's going to do all these terrible things. Um, you know, he was going to put the gays in camps. I think it was. Uh, these were not uh, fringe theories either. This was New York Times. This was Washington Post. Uh, this was this was mainstream uh, Huffington Post when it still existed. Um, uh, he was going to do these terrible. He was going to deport all the immigrants um, and very viciously as well. It was you know it was going to be terrible. Um, he was going to collapse the United States in some way. The economy was going to be terrible. But that's that's Paul Krugman. But uh, interesting choice of words. You say immigrants. I say invaders. Yes, uh, well, I, I, I'm fine with the word illegal immigrants, but uh, sure. and, and yeah, the, if, we, if we qualify the, it as the, illegal, the term, yeah. the term invasion yeah. has become has become a certainly more popular um, in the last year. But but here's what I want to get to: is the Overton window was that certainly from a corporate media perspective, um, and in South Africa, I know you know, Ramon and I, for example, discussed Trump in a not necessarily negative light. So we, there were certain things we weren't happy about, but certain things we were like, well, he might in some ways be good. And we predicted that he would in fact win. I think you did as well. I did as well, yes. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the thing is, is, is we've now had four years of the guy and we had four years without the guy. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, this is terrible. We got Biden and Trump. It's a redo of 2020. It's two 80-year-old men and it's, it's the end of the world. For me, it's the best possible democratic choice you could have. You have Donald Trump who ruled for four years and it's very obvious what kind of leader he was. It's very obvious what kind of effects he had. Certainly, if you're an American, you would be feeling that. But Biden has then also had four years and it's very obvious what type of leader he, he is. Well, he's almost had four years, three years and a few months. And it's very obvious what type of leader he is. And people now get to choose. They get a choice you almost never get, which is you get to choose between two people you know exactly how they will be as the President of the United States. But the Overton window shift is that I feel like the Trump is Hitler stuff isn't selling anymore. That Overton window seems to have completely shifted. Quite right. And in fact, what we've seen happening, particularly with a slew of court cases that have been going on, is that every time Trump gets taken out by the courts, <laughs> his popularity spikes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's quite, quite phenomenal. Um, and, uh, and, well, the ruling the other day was, was, was quite interesting. You, you saw that? You saw I, the. I, I did indeed. Yeah. I'm ridiculous. 
you, you want to give like a, a bit of a pricey on that? Well, effectively, you had a scenario where Trump um, borrowed money from banks. Like and, you would if you uh, got a bond on a house. Correct. And he used Mar-a-Lago, which is his um, golf estate in Florida, mm. as um, collateral for the loan. And the banks took a look at it, and they were very happy to approve it. And um, uh, they went ahead and gave him the loan, and the I, I, loan was paid back in its entirety. It, with, it interest. Started with interest. So with, so with interest. Yes. The one thing to, I just wanted to add was, not only um, did the banks give him the loan, but he said, "Look, Mar-a-Lago is worth a certain amount. I can't remember the exact uh, figure off the top of my it was head. Was about one hundred eighteen million. Okay, he said it's worth about one hundred eighteen million. And um, the banks, of course, never give you a loan without checking if your collateral is, in fact, worth Absolutely that. Absolutely true. Um, so they then did their due diligence, um, as all banks have to do. It's, it's actually part of their regulations. Um, they did their due diligence and said, yeah, we agree. Mar-a-Lago is probably worth about that. And so we will give you the loan against that as the collateral. Um, and subsequently, the New York court has found um, that because... Well, let's be very clear. What the New York court did was they went back and they did their valuation of Mar-a-Lago. They decided that Mar-a-Lago is worth $18 million. Yeah, which and, is hilarious. And, it's and, just, and, if you they, don't know what Mar-a-Lago is, it's, it's, it's beachfront property uh, in uh, Miami. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's beachfront property in it's like a few acres of beachfront property in Miami um in a with a with a house uh, not a house an estate built onto that which looks pretty much like a palace. Um and the fittings in inside obviously, you know, I mean we all know Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> are are, are uh, pretty expensive fittings, you know, marble floors and and gold. But taps essentially, and what they've charged things. him with is they've said that he overstated the value of his property mm. to fraudulently obtain a loan, which the banks denied. The banks say they did their due diligence; they were very happy with it. But the courts have insisted, no, actually, he's lied to a um, he's committed fraud because he overstated the value of his property. Yeah. And this is a criminal offense. Now, understand there's no victim here. No, no, no there is no victim. The, the banks were certainly not uh, 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 put out as a result. The banks were very happy to get their money back. And, in fact, the banks testified in the New York court on behalf of Trump, saying that they were very happy with the deal. So this is clearly a, a political hatchet job in terms of, uh, uh, of Trump. But the knock-on effects, again, to your point, mm. are kind of interesting. Because now you have businesses who are saying that they are pulling out of New York and they are going to relocate their businesses, their incorporation, into other states. And Florida and Texas are now coming up at the top of the list. Yeah, well, they went after uh, Elon Musk as well. Well, that was the Delaware courts. Mm. Um, yes. Uh, so, again, the Elon Musk case is a very interesting story because um, at the beginning when Elon was working out his compensation as uh, – um, chief executive of uh, Tesla, he basically said that if he's able to double the value of the stock, that he'll get paid something like, um, I think it was... 45 billion or something like that. Close to to 50 billion US. And and at the time, everyone, uh, 70% of the shareholders signed off on this. And they said, you know, uh, we're very happy to do this because, you know, it's going to give us a more than 100% return on our investment. And, uh, you know, which is a sizable profit, and we're very happy to go along and do this. And, uh, yeah, so more than 70% of the shareholders approved this pay package. So guess what? Elon ends up, you know, effectively, what, 
quadrupling the value yeah. of uh, of the company. Yeah, more more at one point more than that. In yes, the eight and, times at one yes. point. Yes, and and then he ends up getting this sizable payout, and the Delaware courts, because um, Tesla is incorporated in Delaware, suddenly turned around and uh, and because there is one shareholder who filed an application in a Delaware court to say that this was unfair compensation and that he was prejudiced. Now, said shareholder, in fact, benefited by the fact that his share stock. value... Yeah, his, his stock went up. Went uh, up. With the yeah, value but, of the company. Yeah, but by a, by a few thousand percent as, as a matter of interest. Mm. But uh, this was clearly a put-up job where they wanted a single shareholder who was going to go to court. And the courts have basically struck down this pay package as a result of which um, Musk has now started to move his companies out of Delaware into uh, other parts of the country. So you're seeing this exodus from Democrat-controlled kleptocracies, which <laughs> is you know essentially what this is, because yeah. New York is effectively stealing 500 million from Trump for something that uh, you know uh, it's it's a very systematic move that's aimed at bankrupting the guy. Yes, ahead absolutely. Of, ahead of the very very clearly. Yes. Very clearly, and and I think uh, also psychologically aimed at him because, um, you know, he's an egotistical man, and uh, he's always traded on the fact well, that he's wealthy. Some some have actually called the guy a narcissist, and as said, I'm inclined to agree with that. But yeah, uh, all right, well, yeah. um, you know, but, he's but you know, very successful a narcissist, narcissist. But being a narcissist is not a crime. You know, let's be clear about that. Mm. Yeah, well, being a narcissist is not a crime, and and it's also that sort of fine line between um, courage. Um, um, is courage and, and arrogance, right? So, so you know, if uh, or confidence, sorry, confidence and arrogance. Um, if if you're really good at something and you really know how to do it well, and you pull it off, and you go around telling everyone how good you are at this thing and that you pulled it off, is that confidence or is that arrogance? Um, to me, that's confidence. It's arrogance is when you claim to be able to. But you see, I don't really care what you call it because ultimately, it's a question of are you judging people by their actions, or are you judging people by the way in which they project themselves? And, you know, frankly, I think that actions are a far more important determinant as far as the world is concerned. Mm, absolutely. You know, because, uh, but again, to go back to your Overton window, where words are violence, but violence is not violence. So using that to correlate with the Trump example, you're not judging him in terms of what was his overall impact in terms of the U.S. economy. Well, you know, first of all, he cleaned up the U.S. economy. Real wages grew for the first time in something like 20 years, yep. which, you know, particularly in terms of people who are employed by Walmart, as an example, it's the first real increases that they've had. By the same token, nearly all of those increases have been wiped out under Joe Biden. Nobody's talking about that. And it's been wiped out because of inflation. It's been wiped out by the dramatic increase in the cost of fuel, there's, there's a whole range of things. But everyone says, oh, no, you know, Trump is the guy who says, you know, grab her by the et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's – it's, well, I mean, and not only the American um, side of things. It's, it's, it's interesting to me 
with regards to I'm not an American and uh, I'm unlikely to be an American in the, in the near future. Um, no plans. So <laughs> so you don't plan to walk across the border from the, Yeah, I mean uh, look I, I, if I wanted to be in America, not be an American, um, but if I wanted to be in America, yeah, sure I could just walk from the southern border and into you still the get United to vote. States. Uh, you you may very well get to vote. Uh, they just uh, elected a non-citizen Chinese woman um Chinese citizen uh to be on the elections sort of council in San Francisco. Um so yeah that's what's happening. Um but I look at it from a global perspective. Uh you know during that period the world had a lot of there was a lot of good stuff that went down. No sorry Canton's just dying from something. It's uh, cuz he's older than me. Uh, <laughs> the ribbing has started. Uh, <laughs> so, um, the, you, you know, during that time, there was a lot of good things that happened. I mean, people seem to forget we had we had an ISIS problem. We had terrorist attacks across across Europe. Um, you know, you can go back to Paris um, and uh, other other places in Europe uh, over that period of time before Trump. Um, we we had those issues. Um, he de-escalated the wars in the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, with an intended pullout that Biden then completely screwed up. Um, and uh, just generally, globally, we seem to have a lot more sort of peace. Um, the Abraham Accords, which I think are arguably one of the um, greatest... Um, uh, well, it's the first real progress to peace in the Middle East. Completely. I was going to say ever, the, ever, ever the, since the 1960s, the greatest achievement of his administration and arguably <laughs> one of the greatest achievements of any administration in the modern uh, era. Uh, you know, so so we, we had all of that um, that went down. Um, he also kind of um, managed to blunt Iran quite heavily because of uh, pulling out of the JCPOA or, or stunting it essentially. Um, and as a result of that, um, you know, the world was a lot more stable a place. Of course, then the American economy grew, which mean, means everyone's economy generally grew. Um, there was just a little bit more prosperity globally. Now, that doesn't mean there were no problems, and that doesn't make, make him perfect. Um, but it was just, it was a lot better than the last sort of three years we've had with someone who seems, uh, well, he's not senile. Let's, I mean, he's not, he's not sentient. He's, he's senile. Um, and he seems intent on, or the people around him and controlling him uh, or controlling his presidency seem absolutely intent on um, destabilizing what is the most powerful country in the world, which on, means on, the whole world becomes destabilized. On the other hand, what if you take the view that they're in fact not destabilizing, but they're merely consolidating a power position, which is what they need in order to continue doing what they're doing right now? Okay, and go it's, on. And it's clearly not going to come from the perspective of allowing a Trump presidency to happen, for example. So the reason why you need to have Biden as the candidate that goes into the next election is precisely because he doesn't run the country. Yes. And it's his handlers that in fact run the country and, and set policy and he gets notes in terms of who he's supposed to meet, what standpoint he's supposed to take on, uh, on particular uh, events. The problem that he has is that there are some things that are completely out of his control. So, for example, and, you know, so let's use the current uh, conflict between uh, Israel and Hamas as, as a very good example. There's a number of people around the world who are saying that Biden refuses to tell Netanyahu to declare a ceasefire. 
And my take on it is very different. My take on it is that Biden has told Netanyahu we want a ceasefire and Netanyahu has extended a middle finger to Biden. Yes, I think that, uh, and the reporting from the from the Israeli press is essentially that. Yes, but from the point of view of the Biden administration, they cannot be telling the world that they lack the ability to tell Israel what to do. And so they go on with all of these narratives that get crafted from the sidelines. So, for example, um, it's very clear to me that the U.S. Um, was very much in favor of South Africa's ICJ application um, against Israel. You think so? Yes. And the reason why I think that is because it allows them to find a way to curb the current Israeli uh, government. And it would be unfair to single out Netanyahu because you actually do have a unity government in place in Israel right now. And I think they are speaking with one voice. Generally, in, in, yes. In, yeah, generally. In, well, certainly from a military strategy point of view, it's, it's very clear they are speaking with one voice um, uh, currently. But you know, to go back to the point of if you have the Biden administration unable to publicly call out Netanyahu because the Democrats certainly do not want to upset the very strong pro-Israeli support that they have within their ranks. But at the same time, they are very clear that they want to continue courting the ever-growing anti-Israel support within their ranks. And you know you see this within the, the likes of uh, the squad, as an example. Mm. It, it, it's very clear that this is a very strong and, you know, uh, uh, to my mind, quite a disastrous faction yeah. of, uh, of the Democrats. So how do you destabilize the situation in Israel without saying that you're destabilizing the situation in so, Israel? So, so, okay, let's say, let's say that is the case. I mean, there are, some, there are certainly some uh, Republican senators, congressmen who've come out uh, in objection to that um, ICJ claim taken by... Uh, by South Africa. Um, so obviously it's not um, completely one-sided in terms of the American side of things, but certainly the American left would would not have been upset with that ICJ case. Um, the, 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 I suppose the, the, the question to be, to be asked on the back of, of you know, whether, whether the Americans are supportive of, of, that, of that claim um, would be, you know, is it just, in your opinion, to make them look better in terms of their control over Israel, or is there a is there a longer is there a longer sort of strategy here? Because you know, you talk about the squad, um, that is uh, the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, you know, um, AOC, for example, is a member. Sure. Um, so, uh, and I will take this opportunity in the first podcast episode to remind everyone that socialists are no different to Nazis um, and that uh, they killed um, just as many or more people um, and we should look at them in the same way. Unfortunately, we don't. Um, I do, but many people don't. Um, so, you know, what, what's the, what, what would you say? Is that more of a long-term play as well? Well, the big play that's happening right now is that there's going to be an election at the end of this year. Yeah. And the optics right now in terms of all of these protests that are taking place throughout the U.S. means that there's immense pressure on Biden on an ongoing basis to actually stop um, the conflict that's currently happening. 
And at the point at which Biden is being seen to not be doing anything about it, that looks very bad for him from an election earning point of view. And every day that the conflict proceeds in the Middle East makes Biden look worse. However, yeah. Biden is not in a position to come out and tell all of the people who are protesting that um, I'm going to call out Netanyahu on this because he's not in a position to do that. So, well, he's well, got what, a what he's got a complicated uh, look. He's got a complicated support base in this regard. Uh, in that, um, American Muslims generally vote for the Democratic Party, and there are several states where that uh, constituency is important. Minnesota, as an example. Um, however, there are also most of the Jews vote for the Democratic Party, and that is also a significant constituency in places like New York. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, to try and please both sides, um, certainly if the whole goal is winning an election, uh, that becomes quite difficult because... Which is exactly why the way in which you diffuse the situation is to get... A third party. The third party, the ICJ in this particular case. Okay. And, uh, so so you're, you're bringing in... Your main argument is, yes, we've all heard that the Iranians probably funded the ANC's election campaign. I don't believe that the Iranians funded the ANC election because don't think the that's, logistics that's the of, the, of the Iranians getting money into this country are, you know, I, I think far-fetched. Okay. Remember that it, it would have been relatively easy for any country to bring the, uh, the application before the, uh, the ICJ. And, uh, uh, you know, certainly all of the Arab countries um, uh, could have taken a view on this. But now let me give you a different take on, uh, on, on this matter again. Which, and, and this, again, is the question of nuance, which people don't drill down to. So we all know that Iran is anti-Israel and is completely dedicated to very publicly to the eradication of Israel. All right? Absolutely. So, so, let's, said so let's park that. Mm. What's also very clear is that Iran does not support Hamas. Iran supports Hezbollah. They unashamedly support Hezbollah. They have been very clearly funding Hezbollah over the course of years. There's weapons that get across into um, uh, Lebanon that clearly come from um, uh, from, from Iran. From Iran yeah. But take the view as well that Hamas are fundamentally Sunni and as Sunnis view the Iranians as apostate and are dedicated to their eradication. So the reason, so now. Yeah. So, but isn't it so, a case of the enemy of my enemy <clears throat> is my friend? Well, at, at, at one level, because remember, Iran was very clear, uh, and say, say this much about the Iranians, they are very quick to take credit when um, things the, happen that actually suit the their ends, agenda. Yeah. So October 7th happens, and Iran comes out and says, we want to be very clear mm. that we had nothing to do with this. Um, we are against the Israeli regime, but... They were making it very clear that they were not directly involved in terms of supporting uh, Hamas. Very clearly, again, in terms of the weaponry that Hamas has been deploying. So if you look in terms of their drones and, and, and so forth, it's not the type of weaponry that is being used by the Houthis. So again, let's be clear. Iran yeah, is Houthis backing are, the Houthis. Yes. Okay. For very, very but similar I just reasons. want to pause you for a second because do you remember a few years back, uh, several years ago, there was a flotilla 
um, which uh, wasn't allowed to get to Gaza. I do there was a lot of yes. uh, issues about that because it was um, there was a whole military operation around it. You can go read up on it. Um, but the the point is is that 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 allegedly had weapons from Iran, um, and the Israelis are pretty adamant that um, I'm not talking about now, but certainly previously, um, that there is weaponry in um, Gaza and that has been used by Hamas, which is Iranian. Um, bought essentially um, several of the missiles for example that aren't sort of homemade um, aren't homegrown are, are, are claimed to come from Iran um, look I, I, I'm the type of person who goes out of my way to look for smoking guns yeah. in, in, in terms of this and so I look in uh, so we've seen the missile production facilities that Hamas has been building in those underground bunkers. Mm. You know, the evidence around that has been uh, I, I, has been very clear. I actually think at this point to call mm. them underground bunkers is, is almost unfair. Um, there's a there's a there's a tunnel network, and even to call them tunnels, you need to think of them as tunnels like you drive your car through the sides of mountains when you go to Cape Town, um, because these things are huge. Yes, um, and um, and apparently uh, the sort of square meterage of them is uh, larger than the London Underground. So to give you some sort of context <laughs> on just how how much um, sort of tunnel infrastructure there is, there is a city under the city um, completely dedicated to, to sort of a military operation. But nevertheless, a very, very um, well-constructed um, and, and, and well-operated um, infrastructure. So... But to go, to go back to the point yeah. that I'm trying to get to here in terms of how the power play is actually working uh, in this part of the world. Now, firstly, uh, so let's just tackle the most important thing in terms of who's supporting who. Okay. The Saudis don't want anything to do with Hamas. Yeah. Okay. Um, certainly the UAE nothing. wants nothing to do with yeah. Hamas. Hamas is... Um, Logistical support at uh, a diplomatic level as well as funding is coming via Qatar. Yeah. It's, it's very clear around that because that's where the, the Hamas um, uh, leadership is, is currently based. And they're very safely ensconced uh, mm -hmm. in, in Qatar. The Egyptians want nothing to do with um, uh, Hamas at all. In fact, the Egyptians want nothing to do with the Palestinians. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this goes back to to 1967, because remember at that time, um, Gaza was actually part of uh, of Egypt. Yeah. Um, in the same way that the Sinai, uh, the Sinai that, that the West Bank was uh, was part of uh, of Jordan. Correct. Uh, at the time, and remember at the conclusion of the 1967 war, Israel was actually saying to Egypt, "Take Gaza and incorporate it into your territory, along with the people that are there." Mm. Well, it's interesting because Israel um, actually took a whole bunch of Egypt as territory, not just that part, but Correct, further yes. south. Yes. Um, and then as part of sort of um, ceasefire peace negotiations around that time to, to end that war, um, they, they sort of ceded back a whole bunch of territory which they had, um, which they had taken yes. from Egypt. But Egypt then um, didn't take back all of it. Yes, they did not want to take Gaza. And by the same token, uh, Jordan did not want to take the West Bank. Now, and again, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is yeah. that uh, Gaza happens to be 
a stronghold of the Muslim Brotherhood, who are committed to overthrowing the current government of Egypt. And that's the reason why Egypt and is... And got pretty close before the CIA's color revolution. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so Egypt is very clear. They do not want to open up their borders uh, to refugees that are then going to be based in their country and committed to overthrowing their government. Similarly, the people of the West Bank, remember that they tried... Yes, they to tried take a coup out, against the Jordanian yes, king. Yes, they tried to take out the Jordanian, the Jordanian king. And so the uh, Jordanians are very clear that they want nothing to do with the, with the people of the West Bank uh, as well. But so you have the scenario where if you drill down to looking at the history of the area from 1967 onwards, the surrounding Arab states do not like the Palestinians. Let, let's be very clear about this. By every objective measure, they do not like the Palestinians. However, yes, okay. this they is are, the however, however they are united <laughs> in their uh, antipathy towards Israel. Yes, some of them. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, now, now remember, and so going back to the Abraham Accords, very good uh, mm. starting point. The Abraham Accords effectively upended a lot of that stuff because for the first time what uh, Trump was able to achieve with the Abraham Accords was to decouple the fate of Palestinians from the question of relationships between the Arab states and Israel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Trump's viewpoint was basically, as long as you keep these two things tied together, you're never going to have resolution. Mm -hmm. So let's try, let's rip these things apart and let's try and say, what can we do to actually first ensure that there's not a conflict that's ongoing between Israel and the surrounding countries? And then let's look at how we address the question Absolutely. of the solution in terms of Palestine. Did you listen to, there was a great podcast with um, Jared Kushner and um, I think we, I think he was on Lex Friedman's podcast. Now, I would never recommend Lex Friedman's podcast. I, I, I had uh, Jared Kushner talking on the All In podcast, which is a great podcast, by the way. Okay. And, uh, you know, I highly recommend it. So he did, he did one with Lex Friedman, and uh, fortunately Lex didn't say much the entire podcast, um, which is why it's, 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 it's bearable. Um, and Kushner is a very smart guy um, and was clearly running that part of the Trump um, administration in terms of the Abraham Accords. And he just describes exactly what Yo, just, you're saying. Just, but he, just perspective, by the way, I must, I must yeah. put out there that Jared Kushner is Trump's son-in-law. Yes. He went to work for the administration. He did not draw a salary for the time that he was working with the administration. Yeah. Um, neither did his wife, Ivanka Trump, who's yeah. uh, uh, yeah, Trump's uh, daughter. Trump, uh, Trump's daughter. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, there was scathing commentary in the mainstream media around the fact that Kushner was going to be attempting to broker yeah. peace. Kushner, mm. Kushner, a Democrat, I might add. He's not really a Republican. Yes. Uh, you must go back and look at his history, his family, his father, um, uh, etc. Um, it, it, he tells some of the story on, on the certainly on the, on the Friedman podcast. But the point is, he's a very smart guy who described exactly his thinking around the Middle East and what he went to do in the Middle East and how he got to the Abraham Accord. So I highly recommend it. But it's exactly what you're describing, which he's, he said okay, I understand there's this one issue. What are the other issues? And how can we work towards those issues, understanding that we may have to leave this one issue to the side for now, um, to everyone's benefit, though, um, and certainly to yours, because you know if you're the UAE, uh, restricting trade with Israel, which is arguably the strongest economy in the Middle East, um, then 
I think it is by definition the strongest, but but restricting trade with them doesn't make sense because you're just shooting yourself in the foot because there's a group of people whose plight you agree with, but trade restriction doesn't change that, has never changed that, isn't going to change it. And in fact, if you open up to them, uh, you may actually have a little bit more swing in future in terms of how they decide on policy and where they go with things. Uh, because if you become a strong trading partner, then um, you have relationships with the government. You have um, uh, positions to say things, to say, you know, we'd really like it if you would behave in this way in future. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think I think that 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 background and the context is is important. Um, but I interrupted you <laughs> in terms of in terms of of of, of Iran and, and where we are now. Yes. So I, I I think that if we look in terms of how this is going to play out, which is going to be kind of uh, an yeah, an interesting scenario, because remember that the ICJ deadline uh, for Israel to report back is uh, is coming up soon. And there's been massive pressure on the part of many people, meanwhile, to try and get a, a ceasefire or whatever you want to call it, a, um, a cessation of actual hostilities uh, for a period of time. And if you take a look at this very objectively, uh, if I was in Netanyahu's position as an overall military strategist, what I would be doing right now is by intensifying military action as much as I possibly can, then declaring a ceasefire on the day before one pitches up at the ICJ and going to the ICJ and saying, well, uh, you know, exactly as per your request, we are pointing out that hostilities have ceased and so clearly we are not committing genocide. Well, they don't really need to do that in the end, given what the ruling was. I mean, you know, that that's, that is, I think, moot at this point. I think as South Africa, you know, it was uh, of great pleasure to me as someone who uh, supports Israel, um, doesn't think they're doing anything wrong in the regard of their response to uh, the October 7th attacks. Except this is not a question of right or wrong. No, yeah. I, 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 get, I get that. But, yeah. but I'm just talking from a personal opinion sure. and an emotive yeah. perspective, not a factual perspective. Mm -hmm. This is my personal view is, is they, that the case was ridiculous. And what I really loved about how that played out was we were told South Africa's best minds, their best legal minds, Canton, um, the best we have, they're, they're there, they're at the ICJ, and they're going to wipe the floor um, with the Israelis. Um, and that court is a leftist court, let's be honest. That court is not a friend of Israel. Um, and uh, certainly certainly a lot of the people there, you can go look at their backgrounds and, 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 and figure it out for yourself. But I can, I can assure you, these are not people who are um, largely on Israel's side. They certainly wouldn't be on a Donald Trump government side or even a Bush government side. Um, these, are left, these are generally left-wing folks. And that's how you end up on a human rights court. Um, but the point is, is that they didn't. They didn't wipe the floor with anyone. They made a bit of a fool of themselves, in fact. Um, and that was, even in the general ruling, uh, not, not just the dissents, but in the general ruling, um, there was a lot of um, uh, sort of admonishment, in a way, of the South African argument. And I... Uh, you know that gave me a lot of personal joy. Um, so, so Israel, Israel doesn't really need to now have that sort of ceasefire. What what the the, the ruling was was look, don't commit genocide. We're we're telling you you're not allowed to do that, um, but we're also not saying you're doing that. Um, so we're just giving you a warning: don't do that. Um, and you may continue as long as you continue to be providing aid. 
um, and allowing international aid through, um, which is occurring. Uh, and and that's kind of that. And so Israel got off better, in my opinion, than they were before the case started. So, you know, again, from my uh, uh, perspective, because, uh, you know, just, a, uh, you know, disclaimer, um, I certainly <laughs> have more Israeli friends than I have Palestinian friends. Okay. Okay. Uh, in, in fact, the last Palestinian person that I can think of that I called a friend was Edward Said, who passed away. Um, some years ago, and of course he left the Palestinian uh, Authority because of rampant corruption on their part. But you know, but I don't have um, a personal stake in this at, uh, at 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 the same emotional level that you do. Yeah. So my viewpoint on this is, I look in terms of what are the various pieces in play right now, and then what is the logical outcome that's going to come as a direct result so, of this. So, so what is the logical outcome? And the logical outcome uh, uh, for me you know, comes down to the fact that when everyone was saying, don't go into Rafa because of the fact that that's the place where um, everyone has taken refuge, and guess what? Israel goes in and pulls out a couple of hostages. Yeah. Okay, and, and again, let, let's be very clear in terms of the... Good IC propaganda win for Israel. Yes, but again, in terms of the ICJ... Uh, a ruling. Remember, Hamas was supposed to be releasing the the hostages, but mm -hmm. but, uh, but uh, let, let's put that aside. What is, um, uh, is is going to happen is that Israel is going to continue until they have effectively eliminated Hamas as a military threat, and the reason why Israel is going to do this has got nothing to do with the ICJ. It's got nothing to do with what Biden may say, it's got nothing to do with whether or not there's international condemnation. It's got whether or no, nothing to do with whether or not there are sanctions brought to bear. It's because it is an existential threat. And when you have an existential threat, your choices are either you bow to the threat, in which case you get wiped out, mm -hmm. or you proceed down a path no matter how much it is going to hurt you at other levels because it is that that's the nature of existential threats and people who fail to understand how those things actually work um are not thinking clearly enough if you get emotional around well there's things, a lot of people who don't think clearly about <laughs> existential threats um you know you talk about existential threats we mentioned you mentioned the word invasion invaders um earlier in the podcast uh, America certainly has that problem, but Europe has that problem. The United Kingdom has that problem. South Africa has that problem. We, we all, all of these countries mentioned, and well, Europe's a continent, but essentially they're trying to be one Kumbaya family, which will ultimately fail. Um, but the, the, the issue is, is that, you know, nation states exist because there is some sort of unified culture. This is the whole argument for Cape Secession, by the way. They claim they have a unified culture in the Cape, but that isn't the South African culture. Um, but the point is, is nation states have to have a unified culture of some sort. Uh, and when you start bringing in a lot of people from the outside who have no intention of integrating into that unified culture at any level whatsoever, you create a lot of disruption. Um, and Well, it's the essence of chaos theory, effectively. So, you know, just to, to kind of uh, break this down, 
if you have a highly complex system, and by definition, societies yeah. are highly the, complex. Possibly systems. the most complex system outside yeah. of the, the sort of universe. But, but essentially, you can introduce minor changes into a complex system, and the system is very quickly yeah, you able can, to absorb. You can urinate into your swimming pool. You'll never yes, notice it. And, and you, won't notice the, you won't notice the difference. Very good example. So historically what has happened, particularly in terms of um, democratic, open Western societies, mm. when you introduce these levels of change and you kind of drip feed it. So, and, and the U.S. is a great example because you had Chinese migrants at one part of its history. You had Korean migrants at one part of its history. Irish migrants. Irish migrants at one part of its Italians. history. It, uh, uh, Italians. Um, Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, more... Uh, more recently, nineties, eh? Yes, there, there's there was a very strong uh, influx of um, uh, of North African migrants, Ethiopians in particular, that uh, um, went into the the northeast U.S. and they got absorbed. They they assimilated. They uh, they settled communities within a greater American context, mm. but they all bought into the into the notion. Yes, and when you have a society that carefully controls immigration, then the system as a whole is able to absorb it and the system then adapts to accommodate what, what's coming in. Yeah. But I, when you have the situation that you have right yeah. now, which is instead of, you know, as you say, pissing into the into the swimming pool, yeah. instead you connect your sewerage pipe straight in, straight into yeah. the swimming pool. And that's the situation that you have right now. Yeah. It causes a complete you know, You know we're gonna get you're gonna get a lot of trouble for comparing <laughs> this problem to sewerage. But but I I, I look I also want to point out that the the system will also um, ultimately equilibrate um, with that new um, uh, uh, element that you've added. But the, the problem is it won't be the same system you had before. So, so the United States will not cease to exist because well, 10 I, d- million I disagree that it will eventually reach equilibrium because you know uh, I've, the the alternative to reaching mm. equilibrium is that it tears itself apart, which is not an equilibrium. Yeah, so I mean, it would tear itself apart. This is this is an interesting notion. I had an argument with someone the other day about South Africa as an example, and they said, "Well, South Africa is going to end up as sort of ten different countries." And I said, "No, it's not." You you want to believe it? It will because that probably suits you, and it makes us all feel a little bit better. You know, um, we all think that, for example, let's say the Cape seceded and the KZN seceded and Gauteng seceded, and everyone becomes our own little uh, principalities or countries within and of ourselves. And then we think, well, you know, Gauteng's not that big, and it's uh, quite productive from an economic perspective. So, you know, we can we can manage this ourselves, and it's a lot easier to manage Gauteng, which is a smaller geographic area with less people and less problems in some Except ways. Except all of our water comes from the Sudan. Oh no, we'll get to the resources at, at, at another point. This is the part I laugh about the Western Cape. We'll have a whole episode, I think, on on Western Cape secession and what you and I each think about that and the the, the, the pros and the cons. Um, the point is, though, is that it sounds like a great idea, but it, it doesn't really happen. Um, it, it 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 does over maybe hundreds of years. So you know the world you see now on a world map is not what the world looked like 150 years ago, and certainly it looked very different 400 years ago. Um, but that's also got a lot to do with exploration and conquerage and all that stuff. You know, um, we've we've had a the world is a very different place because we've made rules that are somewhat stupid, in my opinion, um, and some of them are very nice rules and they make us feel good and warm inside. Um, but I'll give you an example. 
you're not at all allowed to conquer another country anymore because those were the agreements signed after World War II, which pretty much everybody signed. So um, the only way, for example, Putin gets part of Ukraine is if Ukraine comes to the table and agrees. But Putin is not allowed to say, the war has ended, I'm building a border fence. Ah, but, but again, there is an out there because remember that parts of countries are allowed to secede. Yeah, so I hear you. There are ways to do it, but it has to be so, within. So the entire break, so the entire breakup of Yugoslavia, being yeah. um, the blueprint for how this effectively happens. Right? Yes. So use that as the business model yes. for how you can effect conquest. Okay, but it, it cannot happen with I wake up one morning as the leader of a country and I'm going to conquest other countries. There's got to be some level of acquiescence. It's got to happen within the sort of Western paradigm and within these Color rules. revolutions. Within, yeah, so color revolutions is one way you do it on the sly, which makes it look like it's the people um, who want it. Uh, and obviously the other way you do it is with war, but then you have negotiated settlements and things like this. The other problem we have is is, is war now. War is uh, still terrible, but the, the problem is is you, if you want to truly defeat an enemy, Geneva Convention makes that impossible. And what Geneva Convention allows to happen is it allows your enemy to work against you because they are not signed to the Geneva Convention. So Hamas, as an example, if Israel... Well, Geneva Convention cannot work in the case of a guerrilla war yeah, because so, you don't have uniform personnel. So we have this problem because there's a disconnect, right, and there's discord. What we have is we have Hamas, who doesn't isn't a signatory to the Geneva Convention, went into Israel on the 7th of October, raped a whole bunch of women, burned a whole bunch of children, families, shot people at point-blank range, innocent citizens, uh, threw grenades into bomb shelters to and, and killed multiple uh, people, uh, simultaneously civilians. Um, all of that, if Israel did that, then not only would they have an ICJ problem, they'd have multiple problems. If America did that, they'd have multiple problems. Um, you know, yes, the punishment for when they do violate these things, like Abu Ghraib, as an example, um, is probably not as harsh as it should be. Um, uh, Joe Biden drone stru struck a whole bunch of kids uh, following the Afghanistan um, withdrawal and the bombing that took place at the airport there, which killed 13 Marines. Um he then uh, got bad Trump intel. Trump took out Soleimani. Uh, well, Trump took out Soleimani. I, I think there's a little bit of a difference between taking out Soleimani and taking out two kids no, it's, or it's three still, kids. It's still uh, an, an, an attack of uh, um, a state representative in a third-party country yeah. um, in defiance of international law. Uh, sure, but, and, but what, yeah. what I'm getting at is, is large-scale. We have a world where we've tied our hands behind our back as the good guys, so to speak, and if you're a bad guy and you're willing to break those rules, then your hands aren't tied behind your back. And, you know, immigration is one of these areas where we have the same problem because we have these rules where um, you're not meant to come over someone's border if you're not meant to do that, if it's not a kind of open border. So if you're a Schengen state, for example, you, you and you're a member of one of the other Schengen states, you can just cross the border, no big problem. But if you're not meant to do that, if you're not from one of those other states, then you're not allowed to. The problem we have is that we've then made a whole bunch of rules on top of that, which turn around and say, well, you know, you're not allowed to, but if you manage to, if you manage to achieve it, then uh, we can't just throw you out. We can't put you in a, a police van, handcuff you as a criminal because you violated the law of that country. 
We can't put you in a, in a van, drive you back across the border and drop you off. It's not how it works because we're civilized, of course, and we are from the West and we're better than that. And so we have to give you a whole bunch of processes that involve um, how we go about this. So we've got to first identify why you're here. Are you a refugee? Are you legitimate? Are you illegitimate? Are you claiming asylum? And different countries have different rulings, but essentially you've got the UN and a couple of other agencies who dictate what the rules should be about all of this. And the whole world has swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. So that, you know, in the States, for example, you have a situation where there are 8 million this year, so far, but probably 10, 10 to 12 million by the end of the year. 10 to 12 million people who've come into that country under the Biden administration who have been told, you naughty, naughty boy, you should not be here. Here's a piece of paper to appear in court in three to four years' time. We'll see you then. You know, and and that is that's that's just just irrational. Um, but you know, these are these are the rules we're we're sort of following as as countries, and and I suppose getting back to the original point about you know whether we'll split apart, and you talked about about you know we'll all come apart, America will come apart, it won't equilibrate. I, when I talk about equilibration, so I don't see countries coming apart. Uh, you look at Africa, I've traveled relatively extensively across Africa, and I find this always interesting about South Africans because South Africans seem to think that they're the worst thing that's ever happened to the world. You know, the things that are going happening to us, the bad things, the decline of the country, the economy, all these things, wow, you know, whew, no one else has ever seen anything like this. Um, just fly four hours north of our border, guys. Like, pick a country. Pick another country north of our border. There's, um, what, 51 of them, I think. Um, you know, or now 52, I think, with South Sudan. But the point is, is, there's more than 50 states you can pick. Go to any of them. They're all worse than us. Although, let me say again, qualifying this. Okay, yes. You have to just pick three countries in yes. our immediate vicinity. Yeah. Okay. I would say that right now, Botswana's trajectory is better than ours. Yes, it's a better Zimbabwe's trajectory. Zimbabwe's tra trajectory is better than ours. You're going to have to explain that, yeah. And Zambia's trajectory is currently better than and ours. And Rwanda, well. I would add in there as well. And, well, yeah, Rwanda's uh, an int interesting. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, yes, and, and Rwanda, certainly in terms of bettering the lives of people on the ground and on an ongoing basis and having a safer society and all of those boxes, yeah, to a large extent, it's actually ticking those boxes. Kenya. Interesting. Um, um, certainly in terms of human development, uh, by almost any level, there are streets ahead of us. They are leapfrogging us in terms of the tech space, particularly in, uh, uh, in terms of uh, telecommunications, but also in terms of med tech, because there's significant investments that are going on right now in Kenya in terms of um, yeah, uh, setting that, up that, that uh, space. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, so I, you know, it's just it it just I, I suppose the point I'm getting at is that there's a lot of examples of collapsed African countries or so-called collapsed states, um, you know, um, failed states, uh, and you know the debate on whether you're a failed state or not. What what's the definition of that, etc. You know, you can go back and forth, but the point is, is there's a lot of those examples in Africa, and they they don't tear themselves apart. They just become sort of permanent chaos factories to some extent. Um, and they equi they equilibrate to the point where, um, you know, if you go to a country like Uganda, it's it's just 
um, it's rundown buildings, it's rundown cars, it's it's um, poorly maintained public infrastructure, that kind of thing. But but life sort of carries on, you know. Um, and at one point, it, it didn't look exactly certain parts certainly of it didn't look as bad as that. Um, Ghana is another fair example. It's had sort of ups and downs over the last few decades. Um, it, 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 you know, South Africa's got a got a potentially a long way to go down. In fact, um, in terms of where it could where it could get to, and and the states is the same kind of situation. So what I'm saying is, you maybe absorb 10 million immigrants who don't believe in the American way of life. They don't view themselves as Americans, and maybe never will. Uh, those people then reproduce two to three times, um, and now you have 30 million people 30 years down the line um, who. Who have American that citizens because yes, those people are American citizens, but they they don't they don't buy into anything. They don't buy into George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, etc. You know the American dream, so to speak. Um, and so, America, in my opinion, may still exist. Now, America might not exist because it's a union, so it may split into states. Um, well, but not necessarily split. And you know, let's just go back to one of the Overton window issues you brought up earlier, which is the question of abortion, and. So, you know, we had that significant ruling um, around um, the overturning of, uh, of Roe versus Wade, yep. which is effectively a Supreme Court action that legalized abortion in the United States for a number of years. Um, now, so again, in terms of perspective, as, uh, as an individual, I'm very much pro-choice, and I always have been, and, and there's philosophical arguments around that which we won't go into. But at the same time, I said Roe versus Wade was a terrible thing. And the reason why it was a terrible thing is because it was legislation that came from the benches and not as a direct result of the will of the people. So, you know, again, uh, by comparison, Italy, overwhelmingly Catholic country, legalized divorce by referendum, legalized abortion by referendum. That's the democratic way to be doing things. The situation that you had in the United States was that this was imposed by the courts. Yes. And as a result, was always going to be divisive. And the courts have now pulled back and they've said, actually, it is for the states themselves to determine the laws in terms of their particular borders. Yes. And if that view then gets applied, for example, to the question of the migration problem, if it eventually gets to the Supreme Court and in my view, the current Supreme Court is likely to say it is up to the individual states to decide how they are going to act in terms of... It's interesting uh, you say that. Yeah. I, I think I disagree with how the court would rule, not necessarily on what the correct ruling is. But um, And the reason I say that is because a few weeks ago they ruled on Texas uh, putting up their own sort of border uh, fencing, essentially. They were putting up barbed wire and other structures to try and stop people crossing the Rio Grande. And uh, that went all the way. The Biden administration wanted to take down the border fencing that had been put up, the barbed wire, but Let's be very clear about the outcome of that particular case. The court, yes. okay, ruled, fair enough. the court ruled that the Biden administration had the right to take down the fences. Yes. They didn't say that Texas did not have the right to put up the fences. Yes. Okay. So, but, but because the federal government has control of national borders, they do have the right to be able to control egress across the borders. Yes. So, so, so this is the. So that's why I say I disagree with the way they may rule because the court seems to view 
um, the borders as a federal, in other words, the, the federal government, not the federated states, the federal government's issue. In other words, so the, the, the sea and the land borders are controlled by the executive. Yes. Um, and so I think they may rule on the side of the executive. The, 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 the real thing is the long term, uh, as we we're talking about, is I'm just saying that you could, you could see a, a, um, a, a state like California, for example, just not resemble what California used to be, but still be called California. Right, and so um, you, you, you have this already. I mean, California is already that. A, a friend of mine posted on Facebook the other day that he used to he used to think he, that's where he'd like to go live, California, because it was just. I mean, there's you know, it's a beautiful place. Um, the weather's pretty good for North America. Uh, it's it's mild all the, the time. The last time I was in San Francisco was 2011. I went there for Steve Jobs's final appearance at uh, the Apple Developer Conference. What a great what a great story. And I must tell you, the place is a shithole. <laughs> okay, it was a shithole back then in 2011. I, I, I wrote comparisons in terms of San Francisco versus Cape Town, yeah, um, uh, as an example. And already, the seeds of decay were starting. Were were, uh, were quite evident, and, yeah. and this has happened in all of these. Yes. Uh, so, so the point the point that was being made was once upon a time it seemed like paradise. And yes. and now it isn't, but um, it's still California, and there are at least several millions of people. It's still the most populous state in the United States, who seem willing to accept the decay. Um, South Africa is a good example of this as well. Um, you know, there are many people in this country who lived through a better time, and I, I'm not talking well, about apartheid, have, by the way. Have, I'm talking about yes, the '90s. If you have access to these gated communities where you're able to comfortably maintain your lifestyle and you don't have a problem with migrants coming into your space because you do have access control, effective border controls, mm. which is the same that we have in this country and mm. all of these uh, these gated communities, then, hey, you know, yes, it is. That, that's all fine it, and it well until paradise. you get uh, a, a gun pointed uh, at your driver's window on the highway in the morning. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and, and get asked to hand not, over your phone. Yes, but now that you do work from home or, you know, if you have a private helicopter, then, you know, <laughs> the, these are things that... Um, I want to know, know your friends, Ken. That, that, <laughs> that, that don't really affect you. flying to work. Yeah. Look, uh, I think that uh, we've covered a lot of ground in this space and uh, we probably need to be wrapping up at this time. In yeah, we've, time we've got a few more minutes. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, you know, that we'll we'll keep this podcast uh, sort of in the hour range, hour to probably hour and a half as a max. Um, uh, but it, uh, yeah, I, th I think this is kind of the way we want to run things in terms of uh, in terms of this this conversation, a flowing conversation uh, with topics. Um, if if uh, it makes sense, we'll bring guests on as well over time. Um, but I think you and I have plenty, plenty to discuss. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a good conversation. I just wanted to perhaps talk about South Africa quickly because we haven't discussed too much. We've discussed a lot of global stuff, some U.S. stuff, um, <clears throat> some some of the Israeli issues. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot here um, in terms of what's happening in the country at the moment. Well, in fact, if we want to drill down right now, the yeah. most significant thing that's happening in our country is MK. Yeah, I was just going to say. Okay. I was just going to say MK um, and, is where and, it's and, at. and MK pretty much eclipses everything else. Mm. 
Um, let me let me set the scene. Let me set the scene for a second before you go you go into that because a month ago, it was about a month ago. When when did they announce? About a month ago. So the day before they announced, um, the political landscape was as follows: There's an election in the next four months. Um, the ANC looks to be weakened, perhaps below fifty percent. Best case scenario around the forty percent mark. Worst case scenario about the 49 percent mark. Um, the EFF uh, may be stronger, ten to fifteen, but they may also be sub eight, um, which means that there is a possibility that you end up with a coalition government with the DA anywhere around twenty five thirty percent at the head of that, along with a whole bunch of other coalition parties. So let me tell you why I disagreed with that viewpoint. Yeah. Pre pre MK. Okay. The fact that the ANC support has dropped below 40% doesn't mean that those people who previously voted for the ANC are going to vote for someone else. In my view, they're more likely to just simply stay away from the polls. Sure. And so what that means is that the overall numbers of people who go to vote, in fact, come down. And that so it doesn't mean that the people who didn't vote for the ANC are going to then well, it depends them. how many stay home. Because if yes. enough stay home, then it's so. If if if, but there are two things that need to happen. You need enough people to stay home, and everyone who voted for the existing opposition parties yes. need to get a go out. If yes. that is the case, yes, then you get a, then, a, a, a big win for the opposition. Then you get a big win. It's not my view that that's the case. Mm. I think that there is rampant disillusionment across the board, across all of the political parties. Mm. With the, and and so there are two exceptions that now suddenly come up. Okay. Gaten is the one wild card, yeah. Um, and but MK is the overwhelming. Okay, so so before MK, but that but you would agree mm -hmm. that that was sort of the landscape before that MK. Was the landscape. Um, and uh, look, my, my personal view on that was that that wasn't going to happen. My view is is that the ANC will achieve um, uh, power, fifty percent uh, of the seats in Parliament. I, I, yes. I, yeah, by hook or by crook. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's because uh, people vote for the other party that named similar to the ANC as it has, has a similar logo. Um, I've considered registering a party just to get a seat in Parliament. Like, you know, you register a party called AMC, um, you know, and you have a wagon wheel and, a, and you know, like some 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 similar colours. And you know, the IEC will probably throw it back to you a couple of times, but you, you can get it close enough that some Google um, who doesn't have a glasses at the polls will so get it wrong. you African Mossad Congress? Um, <laughs> yeah, the African Mossad Con Congress, let's go for that. Um, you know, and, and you would probably get 30,000 votes, which is roughly the, 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 sure. the threshold required. Um, I my view is that the ANC is going to retain power. I've, I've held this view since 2010. I said that I thought the soonest the ANC would lose power was 2029. Um, and that was based on my calculation of the trend, the downward trend in terms of their popularity at the time. Um, however, um, you know, the, the reality is, is that that was the landscape before MK. And then MK came to the ground, which is basically Jacob Zuma. And now everything is different. So go for it. My view is that MK is going to be the first real disruptor in terms of the ANC support base in its entire history. We, we had a couple of shifts over the years. So Cope? Well, let's just look at the historical context. Okay. Okay? So, the, so the first significant breakaway from the ANC was the PAC. And, and the PAC was a thing for a few decades, but, yeah. you know, eventually um, uh, ended up uh, getting wiped out. The IFP was a breakaway from the ANC. Let's, let's be very clear about this because remember that uh, uh, Gacha Butelezi was 
um, from the ANC youth wing, and he had in fact been deployed by the ANC to set up in Carter as a way of actually consolidating power, but then he turned around and took control of it. Sounds like the EFF. Then the EFF, again, uh, is another breakaway. But, but then COPE prior to that. Yes. Again. Remember that, that COPE at the time garnered something like 20%. Yeah, of, yeah. Of, of big. The, yeah, their was, first was, election was huge. Was massive. And uh, and uh, what happened? Well, you had um, uh, Shalom and Lakota who both got into a dick swing yeah. contest and they basically shredded that entire movement apart. Correct. So, and then you had the EFF again. Um, you have Malema, who was head of the ANC Youth League, expelled mm -hmm. from the ANC. And then he started the ANC Youth League again. And, and then he started the ANC Youth League as a separate program. Which is why they still have, their, their, their voting block is pretty much youngsters. Yes. And now suddenly uh, you have, uh, but, but for the first time, you have a person of massive significance um, in terms of the ANC support base. Remember that at the time of Jacob Zuma um, taking over leadership of, of the ANC, he grew the ANC support base just in, in KZN alone by um, a, a couple of million voters, mm. you know, just simply on the and, – and correspondingly at, the, at uh, the point at which he was no longer there, that support base has been lost because you saw that drastic shift yeah. uh, decline in terms of uh, voters in, uh, in KwaZulu-Natal. Right now, the, the polls, uh, polling numbers are showing something like 10% for MK. Uh, nationally, I think it's going to be bigger. Yeah, than that's that. early polls. I, I, I think it's going to be bigger than that. And um, there's a, a, a fascinating anecdote that I, I heard. So, from so you you don't think it's going to be just KZN? I don't think it's going to be just KZN. I think it's going to be um, significantly larger than that. Um, we've already seen the impact in the Eastern Cape. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but the uh, here's here's a fascinating anecdote, and I think it, it's a good thought to leave our viewers with. That um, um, a very close friend of mine in Durban was asking his helper what he had to think, uh, uh, what uh, what she had to think around um, MK's ascendance to power and whether there was likely to be massive support. And she said, "Oh yes, everyone loves Jacob Zuma, and uh, I." promise you they're going to go out and Jacob, uh, support Jacob Zuma to the fullest. And he said, that's interesting. Why? And she says, because of July 2021. Because they arrested him. No, not, not because they arrested him. Okay. Because of July 2021. And th this is the fascinating thing, all right? And I'm still been trying to get my head around it. She said, because July 2021, for the first time, we suddenly had things as a result of the looting that they have never had before. So they got fridges, they got TVs, they've got, you know, all of the things that were stolen. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, was a wave of prosperity for people who never had those things before. And they I are, suppose. And they are <laughs> attributing that to Jacob Zuma. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Wow. Okay. Well, so that's uh, some food for thought that you have not read in uh, any kind of corporate or mainstream media. That's what we're going to be trying to do every single week, um, or every second week every for now. Every second week, yes. Um, on this podcast. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. 
at the moment, I don't have anything to plug. Please go um, do subscribe to the... Um, oh, I want to plug my book again. Uh, I'll, I'll let you plug your book in a second, <laughs> uh-huh. you fiend. Um, <laughs> um, okay, go for it. There you go. There it is, on the camera. How to Fix South Africa, an owner's manual. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can go to howtofixsa.co.za. Yeah. Um, to find out where to buy the book. but It's a short book, guys. I mean, you, you really, it's a quick read. Yeah, it's a quick read. It's 250 Rand at uh, at bookstores. So you can get it from Love Books in Johannesburg. You can get it from Clark's in Cape Town. Yeah. And you can get it from Ike's in Durban. Okay. Exclusive? Exclusive. I'm still trying to wade through the bureaucracy to get it onto the really? shelves. Really? It's, it's, it's um, yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, well, please do go. Uh, please do go buy. If you Clinton's have people book. that you know in exclusives, just basically tell them they need to be stocking this. Up. Yeah. Well, um, if you could just go next time you add exclusive books, just go ask them if they have that book, and if they when they say they don't, please ask them why, and if they could please stock it, and then I'm sure it will it will come into stock. Um, as for plugging on my side, just um, the Overton Press. Um, it's on Substack. Overtonpress.substack.com. Um, for now, if you just subscribe there, there'll be announcements about the podcast as well as some other publications. You can go see what we published last year. Um, some really good articles, some thought-provoking stuff, including something on NHR from yours truly. And yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this and uh, we look forward to doing this for some time going ahead. And thank you very much for listening or watching. Uh, Please do pass this on to your friends and family if you found it uh, useful and insightful. Uh, Thanks very much. We'll see you next time. Cheers.